Greetings and salutations, one and all. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels, where we talk about movies, and then maybe we'll talk about some cyber. I am honored and, and so happy and excited to have our guest today, uh, Bailey Bickley. Bailey is the Chief of Dib Defense at the NSA Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. Uh, Bailey's title is so long, she has fold-out cards, which is awesome, because I love titles like that. Um, so thanks, Bailey, for, for joining. It's a pleasure to, to meet you sort of in person, kind of. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, and you know, it's government. We love our, our long titles. So what can we say? <laughs> yeah, I in a previous job, they asked me to make up a title. So I made up, I was the uh, head muckety-muck at the Ministry of Silly Walks, and they actually printed me cards that way. So enough about me. Uh, all right, so let's get started. Uh, as our listeners know, we always start off with a movie question. So let me think, Bailey. What am I gonna? What am I gonna hit you? All right, I, I got one. Um, name a movie that made you see the world in a different way, and what you did with that. Okay, well, I, we're gonna get to know each other really well because I'm gonna be super honest. Awesome. I was like googling movies over the weekend. I don't watch a ton of movies. Um, to be honest, they put me to sleep. If I sit down for 90 minutes, you know, I'm out in the first 15. Um, so, but I do have an answer for you. I was like, am I going to lie to this man and come up with an inspirational movie or am I just going to be honest? And um, I watch a lot of documentaries. And so all the true crime documentaries have completely changed the way that I see the world because now I see serial killers everywhere. Like, I don't know, Jeff, like you might have bodies in your backyard, you know? Um, so that's my real answer. All right. Well, I live in Southern Florida, so we don't really have ground to dig in. It goes right down to the water. So I, I assure you, I have nothing, nothing going on. That's what you want me to think. So it's funny you say that. I don't know if you're a fan of John Wick, but, um, in the John Wick, uh, universe, pretty much everyone in New York city apparently is an assassin, which is, I don't think, yeah. the thing, hopefully it's not the thing. So, <laughs> I I, hope it's not so I, I love that. I, to be honest, I'm not a huge documentary person, but my, the movie that made me see the world in a different way was big fish. So I don't know if you've ever seen that, or at least seen the first 15 minutes of it, but I love that movie because the whole premise of the movie is stories being told by a father to his son. And the son thought he was making it all up. And it turned out he met all those people and it was about, it was an exaggeration, but he came to love his father after having like a life of, of conflict. And I, to me, that just made me, first of all, it's a very sweet movie, but it made me think so, so differently. So. That's really sweet. And it also underscores the power of storytelling. Yep. So. That, that is one of my favorite topics. I, I present to people on that all the time and in your role, and we'll talk about your role in a second clearly being able to tell stories and being able to articulate and pivot and kind of change on the fly is, is super critical. So, all right. So I know a lot about your background, Bailey, because we did a ton of research before, before we, oh we got you to agree <laughs> to be on. Um, your background is super, super impressive, but I think our, our listeners would love to hear about your journey because it's, it's really interesting and there are some unique qualities. So how did you end up in as the chief of Dib Defense at the NSA Cybersecurity Collaboration Center? That was pretty good, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to talk a little about that. It was um, definitely non-traditional. Uh, so I started at NSA or the National Security Agency when I was actually about 16 years old. 
I was an intern. Uh, NSA has something called the high school work study uh, program where they'll take students their junior year in high school and actually put them through the polygraph process and give them a clearance and then let them intern at NSA. And I love to promote that because I think it's such a unique opportunity for kids. Um, and, you know, it's also something that not everyone knows about. And I tell people it's a lot easier to pass a polygraph when you're 15 versus later on in life. Um, so it's a really good way to get your foot in the door doing something that really matters. Um, so that was kind of how I started. And, you know, for the first couple years of my career, I did communications and marketing in technology organizations at the NSA. I really loved it. I think um, there's so much about technology and cybersecurity I didn't understand at the time. So I felt like I was always learning. And, you know, my background and my degrees are in communication. And so I felt like I was able to find this really sweet spot of translating deeply technical jargon into something that people could action and understand. Uh, so I did that for a while and really got hooked on cyber. Um, specifically, you know, in 2014 to 2016, I was one of the people impacted by the OPM breach. And I remember getting my letter and thinking like, dang, you know, this sucks. <laughs> Let's make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, and so you know, kind of got interested in cyber then. Um, I did resign from the agency. So I, I had worked there, you know, starting in high school through college. And I resigned after about seven years um, to work in the private sector. And that was likewise just a phenomenal experience. I felt like doing that so early in my career gave me building blocks that I have now been able to carry with me through the rest of my career. Um, I was doing consulting uh, specifically at an IC sister agency. Uh, so that was also really cool because, you know, I was able to experience how the private sector does things, but also how, you know, another critical member of the intelligence community works as well. Um, so did that for a couple of years, and I just really missed the mission at NSA and the people. Uh, so I came back and was part of the small team that stood up the NSA Cybersecurity Directorate in 2020. And from there, I think I was able to kind of work with folks and just really fortunate to be in, in the right place at the right time, uh, which brought me to my current role in the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center which is NSA's home for working with the private sector on cybersecurity. Um, and so I feel now in my role, all of those skills and the, the things that I've picked up along the way in my background has kind of converged. So that, that's awesome. I, I love that. I love hearing about people's sort of journey. I, you know, I'm a big fan of, there's an old Yiddish saying, um, if you want to make God laugh, tell them what your plans are. And I always <laughs> like to see how people go. And I think that your being in the, public sector and then going to private and then back to the public sector, I think really put you in a great position to be able to fulfill on the, on the role that you have now. So um, let's, let's kind of talk a little bit, a little bit about something that relatively new, which I think dovetails really nicely with, with your mandate. So 
the White House just recently put out a new cybersecurity strategy. And in that, there is a very, very heavy focus on public-private partnership. So here's my question for you, Bailey. This is not a new thing, public-private, right? We've been trying to get it done for, for a long time. So what's different now? What is the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center doing to, to make it work? Because we know the, the people love to hear what the government says and to not do what the government tells them to do. So what, what are some of the things you guys are working on to, to really make this work? Because I think it's so important. We will never, ever be successful at defending our cyber, whatever you want to call it, without that, that really good public-private partnership. So tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and how you're going to change things for the better. Oh, thanks. It's, it's interesting, you know, taking a step back, I'm going to give you a little bit more of a theoretical answer, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts, I think. Um, but I think one thing that's really changed is just the environment. You know, one of the things I like to say is NSA has been doing cyber since before it was cool. You know, we've had this mission for decades, even though we called it different things throughout the years, um, communication security, computer security, information assurance, you know, but cybersecurity hasn't always been a priority. It's never really been thought of as a national security issue until far more recently, I believe. And so I think that one of the things that's really interesting about where we are right now is, you know, there have been significant incidents before. I think about OPM, I think about Sony Pictures, the EOP hack. Um, but, you know, to me, SolarWinds was something that really changed uh, the community because the administration was turning over we had a new deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging technology. We had a new ONCD office of the national cyber director. And likewise, you know, as government was starting to prioritize cybersecurity, we were seeing that in industry as well, it becoming more of a boardroom issue to even a kitchen table issue. And so I think the first thing is that you know, broadly across society, we recognize this is not only a national security issue, it's also like an issue for grandma who's getting her identity stolen, you know, and small businesses who are getting hit by ransomware actors. So I think now there's a lot more focus and urgency and attention and resources on this issue. So that's the first thing that's changed. Um, you know, for the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center specifically, we've made a lot of shifts to try to get this right. And I think one of the things that's working really well for us is, you know, moving beyond the catchphrase, public-private partnerships or operational collaboration or whatever the flavor of the day is, to really robust analyst-to-analyst -analyst, uh, exchanges. And, you know, telling a personal story, because I love storytelling, I was working in the NSA cybersecurity directorate when SolarWinds happened. And I remember, you know, being overwhelmed as the first couple of days are, you know, unfolding. There's so much that you don't know and you're being asked questions and you're trying to pull threads. And I remember being so amazed because there was multiple meetings I sat into where you just brought the subject matter experts in their field into the room and everything else took care of itself. You know, even though these people were only responsible for their slice of the pie, 
when you got them all in the same place, you could just see light bulbs going off and, you know, things really beginning to unfold in a way that was cohesive. Um, and that kind of taught me the power of you just have to get the right folks talking to the other right folks. <laughs> like it's it not seems like such that. common sense and people don't do it. Right. And, and I love that. And, and I think that COVID probably put a little bit of hitch in that giddy up because you couldn't really get all those people together. And I think now mm-hmm. that we're able to do that. So I, I love that, that sort of the way you describe collaboration, getting the people to talk to one another, so common sense, but so important. And as we know, not everybody sort of shows common sense the way we would, we would like them to. So I love that. Yeah, but and I I think that's spot on. But I would also say, you know, COVID was tough, but I think it also accelerated things because um, for us, we began to shift, you know, our partnerships and collaboration into a virtual environment. And so um, that fostered a lot more conversation because, you know, you don't have to arrange for this awkward meeting and there's not travel and all that, you know, it's just people in a chat channel saying hi to each other. And that's really, you know, what it boils down to. Um, And so for us, we're really focused on that, you know, we call it bi-directional analytic exchange, where we get the, you know, CTI analysts or network defenders from an industry partner in a conversation with NSA's uh, network defenders and and our analysts. you know, and I think, I guess the final thing on this point, sorry, I'm a little long-winded. That's okay. <laughs> but you ask good questions, is making sure we're clear on what our differentiator is. You know, there's so many people in team cybersecurity, and rightly so. Uh, resilience and redundancy is good in cyber. And, you know, for us, we bring those unique insights on nation-state cyber actors. Um, and so... Being clear on, you know, the space that we want to be in and, and what we bring to the table, I think, has been important in not only attracting partners because our relationships are voluntary, they're not, you know, contractual in any way, um, but also managing expectations, you know, for these partnerships moving forward. So I love that. And that's great stuff. So here, here's a question. I think in the past there there's somewhat there's sometimes been a reticence on the private side of this sort of collaboration, right? We'll we'll take what you tell us, but you want us to tell you stuff. I don't know that I really want to do that. So how how are some of the ways that the that the center is sort of ma- making I guess making those people feel more comfortable sharing that it's not going to come back to bite them? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Uh, so. I hate to do this. Everybody hang in there with me, but I think it would help if I shared a little bit about, you know, what's in scope for us within our authority. That's great because that was going to be my next question anyway. Oh, good. I I should have known you had a question about authorities. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we're really responsible in the center for looking at the U.S. defense industrial base. And that's, you know, that vast ecosystem of folks that contract with the Department of Defense, but it also includes their supply chains as well as their service providers. So think, you know, IT companies, cloud providers, internet service providers, et cetera. So, you know, more than 300,000 companies uh, that, that would be considered part of the DIB ecosystem. And, 
you know, what we found is that these companies uh, range in size from your large defense crimes to really small to medium-sized businesses, mom and pop companies, so to speak, that don't have resources, budgets, talent, or expertise to take on a nation-state cyber threat alone. Uh, but regardless of their defensive posture, these companies are square in the sights of nation-state adversaries who are seeking to steal you know, their proprietary technology. Um, and so for us, our, our role is really making sure that we share what we know about these threats to help these companies and our valuable partners in the defense industry harden their networks, uh, protect sensitive U.S. government information. And so it helps because um, that's kind of the motive, and that I think is something that's mutually beneficial for both industry and government. And so it's certainly a good scene setter uh, when we go in with that in mind. The second thing that's important about the Collaboration Center is I mentioned before, our relationships are entirely voluntary. Uh, so we're very careful about not getting into a space where we're compelling or requiring anybody to work with us Rather, you know, we have insights on nation state threats that you might want. You have insights on what's actually happening in your networks. Uh, it might make sense for us to talk to each other, combine those insights for a more comprehensive threat picture. Um, and then it's really their decision. And, and so far with that kind of pitch, uh, we haven't had a lot of, a lot of issues. So that's great. And, and I think you said something. I, I talk to people about the complexity of supply chain risk all the time. And I actually use the DOD as an example because people say, oh, well, defense contractors, big companies. Yeah, they are, except they buy modules from a company who buys screws from a really small company. And if that screw is not produced to spec, the big ones can't deliver. So so I think that's a that's a great example. We talk a lot about cascading risk. And I think that's when you're three, four levels removed. So I'm glad that you guys are looking at that, that larger uh, area. So follow on question. Um, do you ever see going outside the defense industrial base for these services? Or do you think it's going to stay squarely in, in that arena? I think that we um, are working to secure the DIB and we can do that by working with major service providers. Um, and so I would say two things. Uh, first, you know, when we work with a cloud company or an ISP, um, our collaboration, which is intended to secure the dip, has ripple effects because, you know, customers across the globe are relying on these same companies. So when we can share information on nation state tactics, techniques, procedures, malware, with those companies and they can then enact defenses um, that scales globally. And so that's something that we can do already today within, you know, our DIB authorities. Um, we also partner really closely with CISA and FBI and other U.S. government partners that have a broader remit. So when we know something that's actionable, uh, we always share that with our U.S. government partners as well, and they can then uh, cascade, to use your word, that guidance more broadly across all 16 critical infrastructure sectors. So that, that's great. And I, and I think 
the value that's being provided, I think, I think is probably under, not well understood by a lot of people that are sort of two, three, four layers removed. You know, let's face it. And we tell people this all the time. A lot of the bad actors out there. Yeah, sure. They would love to target the big giant companies, but they'll take what they can get to a certain extent. And if they can hold a small company hostage with a piece of ransomware, they'll take that money. And, and maybe those organizations are more likely to even, even pay because they can't really afford to not be in business. And I also want to go back a little. So you talked a lot about protection of intellectual property and those things, but there's also a, a, an operational dependency, right? Especially where you guys sit, that operational dependency may oftentimes be more important than the actual data that gets lost, so I think that's the other thing that I think a lot of people don't pay a ton of attention to. So, so I love, I love that. That's great. So, um, so what are, what are the specific services? So do you have a service catalog that you have actually published or that is available that sort of talk, we do this, 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 and this, I mean, you talked about your remit from, from the div, but what about what do you do versus what don't you do? What can you do versus what can't you do? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I love the idea of a service catalog. You might see that soon. Um, so we have three services right now that are really mature and we're piloting four in the next year. Um, but first taking a step back to kind of explain our model, you know, what we've found is that we can contract with commercial providers to provide these services at no cost to small to medium-sized businesses. Uh, specifically, the Department of Defense has made a significant investment in NSA and is fronting the cost. So we can then pay up front for these customers. And once we enroll them in the program, they're essentially benefiting from stronger cyber hygiene. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, for our services, we really looked at what are the ways we're seeing nation state actors as well as, you know, ransomware actors targeting the defense industrial base. And let's make sure that our services uh, are designed to defend against those vectors. Uh, we talk about sometimes being the signal through the noise for these companies, which is you know a play off of our signals intelligence mission, but really trying to help them prioritize what they address when is, is important. And then finally, the third thing with our services is we work with uh, our providers to ensure that they're bolstered with um, NSA unique insights um, on known bad activity, which we get from a lot of different sources. Um, certainly, you know, we are a world-class foreign intelligence agency, but we also have industry partners, international allies, we have cybersecurity sources. Um, and so we make sure that we bolster those. Now, you asked me about the services specifically. Sorry, I get excited when I talk okay. about them. So uh, you know what? I, I love the passion, Bailey. Good, thanks. I have that in spades. Um, so the first one is called Protective DNS. Um, and just in case our listeners aren't familiar with, with what that is, uh, DNS is often called the phone book of the internet because it's essentially, you know, if you type in a human readable domain like nsa.gov, slash CCC, uh, you know, DNS is what translates that domain into a machine-readable IP address. And because it's so pervasive, you know, it's the backbone of the internet, 
our adversaries frequently hijack DNS to install malware and gain initial access to sensitive systems. So protective DNS, PDNS, essentially leverages commercial threat intelligence feeds as well as you know the sources we're putting in to just run those uh, DNS queries through a filter, so to speak, and filter out known bad um, or suspected bad sites. Uh, so we did a small pilot where we saw um, millions on millions of malicious domains locked blocked, including nation state malware, spear phishing, and botnets. And so um, we found it to be really successful, and we're now scaling that service out. So that's the first one. The second one is attack surface management. Uh, and this is focused on helping companies identify uh, what parts of their network might be touching the internet. Um, so really taking an adversarial approach to identifying those and then doing vulnerability checks to say, okay, we found this infrastructure and you know, maybe there's a known vulnerability that hasn't yet been patched. And what we found is that you know, patch fatigue is a real thing and companies are really overwhelmed. So we provide them a prioritized report that says, here's what we found and here's the things you should be concerned about, specifically prioritizing based on severity of the vulnerability and what we know adversaries are currently exploiting. So that service has been uh, really helpful to, I think, to folks who are trying to say, okay, but what do I need to worry about today, you know? And then the final uh, mature service is threat intelligence collaboration. And this is where uh, folks can enter into an agreement with NSA to get non-public DIB-specific threat intelligence. Um, and it also gives them access to our analysts so they can ask questions about the data and have that back and forth conversation that we've talked about before is really, really valuable. All right, good. I, I love that. I think those uh, that's a nice sort of nice rounding. And, and I think one of the things that you sort of hit on that I think is important for everyone to understand, the more data we can see, the more patterns we're able to analyze. And I think people tend to think, oh, well, I see, I have all class C subnet, right, to uh, use that. But there's a much, much bigger thing out there. And, and I love the fact that you guys are doing that. And I also love that you're matching the, the actual vulnerabilities with what's being compromised. Part of the reason why vulnerability management has been such a challenge is people take a purely technical approach and they don't look at, well, okay, yeah, that's a bad open spot, but nobody knows how to compromise that. There's no sort of known, known attacks. So, all right. Um, so what are, so let, let's kind of shift a little bit uh, and talk about sort of the human capital element. You talked about the training that the NSA does, and I think that that's great. And I love to hear that. Um, we hear from hiring managers in companies, we can't find people. And then if you go and you look at like, uh, the subreddit for computer science people, they say, we can't find jobs. Both of those things cannot both be true. So, so can you share some of the things that you guys might be doing to help sort of, you know, fill those open roles, educate people, train people, move them up, maybe shift them around. So I, I'd love to hear about some of those things that, that you guys are doing. And then also maybe build there. Let's face it, 
public sector doesn't always have the checkbook to write and people are getting stolen by banks, by, you know, internet service provider companies, by consulting companies. So if you can share a little bit about how you're sort of addressing that, I think that would be great as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is just a pet peeve. You know, I worked in consulting, so I'm very familiar. I actually worked in uh, human capital. Um, but the first thing is like they're people. <laughs> Someone, one of our, our leaders at NSA just said this, and I love it because they're in HR. And they said, first of all, we've got to stop thinking about these people as human capital, like they are people. What motivates people? You know, what gets them excited to get up in the morning? And I think that's really important. Um, you know, it's it's interesting right now. Uh, we're really fortunate. NSA is in the middle of this massive hiring surge. We're hiring 3,000 people in the next year. And um, the timing is just interesting because this industry right now, there's a lot of folks getting laid off, which is devastating. And but we scary. It is. It really is. And it's it's hard when you see it impacting, you know, your friends and people in the community. And it's kind of been back to back, you know. Um, but we're hoping we can be part of the solution uh, in hiring these folks, you know, to public service. Um, you know, I hear you on the salary, uh, but I think that what we're finding is, you know, there's still people that are really driven by mission, certainly, um, but also balance. You know, I mean, I am a millennial and the generation behind me is Gen Z and there's so much, you know, it's, I guess I'll say it like this. There's a generation that's changing from, um, what is it? Live to work to work to live. And I think that's one of the amazing things about government is, you know, you work eight hours a day and you go home if that's what you want to do. You know, there's never an expectation of, you know, I don't, you I don't know. I've never known what that's like in my entire career. <laughs> well, hey, did you know we're hiring? <laughs> Just kidding. We'll talk about that offline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I guess I'll speak for myself. I always found, you know, at NSA, um, if I had a, a season in my life where I wanted to have balance and travel and I was in school, you know, I could work 40 hours a week. I could go home and I could leave that at work. I wasn't answering phone calls from my boss at 10 p.m. I wasn't working on the weekends, you know. So there's a good culture of balance. Um, but also when you're ready to, kind of take that next step in your career, you can work overtime and weekends and take those high pressure, high paced jobs. So there's really good balance. And so I think that that's something that the federal government can offer now that's unique. You know, you want to travel the world, you want to have fun, you want to, you know, meet your commitments outside of work. Working in the federal space is a really good place to do that. Uh, the final thing you mentioned was training. Um, you know, we do have good training. I'm actually taking this call from San Francisco. I am at RSA. Um, Me too. So, no way. Why are we doing this via laptop? We should be in a room together or something. Um, that's so funny, this virtual world. 
but you know, so there's, there's good training and, and we get to travel and go to industry conferences and, and stuff like that. You know, for uh, my organization, we've been focused on training traditional NSA signals intelligence analysts on this unclassified space and all of the cool things that our industry partners can offer them um, in terms of insights that technical insights that might expedite attribution of a malicious cyber incident um, or just round out our understanding of a threat. So that's kind of our focus areas. Anyways, summing up a long answer, we're hiring intelligencecareers.gov slash NSA. All right. Awesome. So uh, we've covered a lot of topics. I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, I have some sessions I'm going to look to take in uh, at the conference this afternoon. So any final closing thoughts, Bailey, before I do my wrap up? No, I think we're just grateful of this opportunity. You know, NSA, uh, I think people used to joke it was no such agency. I think that's really changed in the last five to, to 10 years, you know, we've been a lot more public, um, but we need help spreading the word, you know, specifically for the defense industrial base. Again, 300,000 companies, mom and pop shops. And to your point of these companies that might be just making a bolt or a screw in an overall weapon system, some of them don't even realize they're part of what the government would consider the dib. And so we need help spreading the word, reaching those people, letting them know, you know, hey, we're here from the government and we're here to help. It's not just like a shtick. You know, we actually have services that might be valuable to them. And so, um, you know, I would just ask you and anybody that might be listening to this podcast to help us in, in spreading the word. Awesome. So thank you so much, Bailey Bickley, for, for joining us. It was a, a great conversation. I learned a lot. Uh, and, uh, I always, I always say a day when I didn't learn something is a wasted day as far as I'm concerned. So I want to thank you for, for coming. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners. This has been another episode of risk and reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman. Um, thank you for joining. Please subscribe to the podcast so you will not miss any further uh, episodes. We have a ton of great guests coming up, sharing all kinds of great information about cybersecurity, about people management. See, I said people, not human capital. I learned something new. And I want to thank everyone for joining. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Weekman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.